The spectators were exhausted, and they weren't even the ones in the ring. But that doesn't mean that this boxing match was boring. No, on April 6th, no wait, scratch that, it's now April 7th, 1893, they were witnessing sports history, the longest boxing match on record. At 9.30pm, Andy Bowen entered the ring at the New Orleans Olympic Club with confidence. He was a rising star and a local town hero in the Big Easy. He became a sensation after having gone undefeated in his first 14 fights. Known as the Creole Terror in the lightweight division, Bowen himself was actually pretty short, five foot five to be exact, but he packed pure muscle with his right hand. You may not care about these details, but these are the things that are really important for boxing purists, of which I admittedly am not one. But there were critics for Bowen, as there always are in sports, and he was determined to prove them wrong. He wasn't a fluke. He just needed a good fight to prove it. He was facing a newcomer, Texas Jack Burke. What is it with these nicknames? It's like bull riding. The more creative the name for the bull, the more cachet they get. At 130 pounds, Burke was not supposed to be in the ring that night. Known only as a trainer at the Young Men's Club, he was actually the promoter's second choice. But that did not intimidate him. In fact, one reporter explained that he is in very good condition having trained himself in the hope of being taken on as an emergency for anything that might turn up in the line of a fight. Burke had a reputation for jawing with his contestants, another trick to get attention. And this fight, it was his shot. He was now the man in the ring, and he was not going to let this go to waste. By the end of the first round, it looked as if Bowen would win again. But Burke surprised the crowd, and possibly himself, in the second round by being the first to draw blood from his opponent. The first drops of the buckets that would follow. This was most likely the moment both boxers realized... It's not going to be an easy fight. It's when the music would get cued, or it's the he's cut, the Russian is cut moment. And neither one was willing to give in. Which is why the fight lasted 7 hours and 19 minutes. Yeah, that's right. 7 hours and 19 minutes. 3 minutes a round and 110 rounds. Add in the breaks in between and you end up with, well, an endless rock fight. As the sport evolved from bare-knuckle fighting to the Queensberry rules, there was a tradition to keep going until a clear winner reigned. Eventually, the sport adopted the standard 15 rounds, and then it went to 12, which, if you've seen any match, they call that going the distance. It's a spectacular feat of athletic endurance. It's a brilliant, elongated dance of exhaustion. Read the newspaper clippings that day and it becomes very obvious. There are incredible details in the first few rounds, but as they begin to pile up, each one blends into the other and the details abate. It's about round 50 that the reporters 
they just give up. Who cares about what they're actually doing in there? It was just simply a matter of who is going to last. In the 23rd, Bowen was actually knocked down twice. And almost again in the 25th, but Burke failed to follow it up. Maybe, because at this point he had broken both of his wrists. At one point, near, well, who knows what round, Bowen asks Burke why he's not punching. I can't, he says. Both my hands are gone. The doctors would confirm after the fight that he had broken every bone in his hands. Just one of the reasons he would spend six weeks in bed. So he continued to dodge and weave, as they say, playing defense until he had his wits back. Each punch was a serious tactical risk of resources. So in a few rounds near the end, they just stared at each other as if they could win with their eyes. But eventually, one would get a jab in and it would awaken the pugilist spirit, sending them into a feverish brawl. The news cutoff time came and went, so the papers had to go to print stating, at 3.45 a.m., the fight was still in progress. By round 108, the referee, he'd had it. He'd finished the fight if either one of them couldn't. By the 110th, both of them were still standing. Barely. The purse was for 2,500, but there was no official winner. I mean, who could keep track of all the hits, the points, the knockdowns after 110 rounds? So, referee John Duffy, a.k.a. The Professor, offered a compromise. Split the winnings. After all, both of them had earned it. Nobody disagreed. The fighters were just as excited to get out of the ring. Both had lost nearly 10 pounds, and though neither had won, both had achieved something far greater. They became, as one blogger put it 130 years later, legends. Welcome to Microbehaviors, a different kind of podcast that uses stories from the past to help you apply the latest behavioral research. In each episode, you'll get one small action that you can do today so you flourish at work, home, and in your relationships. I'm Andrew Webb. This is Microbehaviors. Let's get to it. This story has been told countless times and usually with a good dose of testosterone. Its telling inspires us to not give up on our dreams, fight for what we believe in. Or here's my personal favorite from a blogger. Are you in pain? Good. Except maybe, just maybe we got it wrong. Or at least we willfully selected what we took away from a story like this one. Who am I kidding? That's exactly what we did. And it's exactly what we always do when we hear stories. It's not disingenuous. It's science. Researchers have learned that when we hear stories, our brain is literally recreating the event, as if in many ways we are living the experience ourselves. All by themselves, words 
have little cognitive impact. But when we bubble wrap these words with a hero, a challenge, or a triumphant emotion, we give them a meaningful identity. And we force the brain awake, invoking far more of its faculties. It's exactly why after a long presentation, we can't remember the PowerPoint slides, but we can remember the story. We can remember how it made us feel. You may have heard the term, but psychologists have generalized this phenomenon as mirror neurons. It's a broad category in science, and truthfully, some researchers have taken liberties. But these neurons fire, imitating the story or situation we're hearing. It impacts how we empathize and even learn about others. Cognitive scientists recently monitored brain activity on a number of participants, and they read descriptive sentences like, Pablo kicked the ball. Or, John grasped the object. In essence, there are many stories. The scans showed that when they read these little stories, they weren't just using language processing sections of the brain. They were using their motor sections, too. Specifically, the parts of the brain that are involved with the leg's movement. In fact, I can almost guarantee that as you were listening to the story of Andy Bowen pulverizing his opponent in the ring, your heart rate, it increased just a smidge, as if you were anticipating your own experience in the fight. I will never forget when my first daughter lost her tooth. She was excited, of course, nervous for the floss I had just tied around her dangling denture. Are you ready? I asked. She nodded. But how can you really be ready for something you've never experienced? She was trying so hard to be brave. What I didn't notice then, at least not until after, was that my son was watching too, and he was just as nervous. With a yank, the tooth came free, and she was ecstatic. Her body was shaking from the adrenaline. My son watched her rub her tongue all over the empty space. And what was he doing? The exact same thing. I watched his tongue check to see if his tooth was still there. But the experience was so real, his mirror neurons were helping him with empathy, with visceral learning. It's an experience I'll never forget. One leading researcher also points out something especially powerful when we tell stories. We aren't just influencing their minds. We're being influenced together. It's called neural coupling. In a rare study, they monitored both the storyteller and the listener's brain, saying, When the woman spoke, the volunteers understood her story, and their brains synchronized. When she had activity in her insula, an emotional brain region, the listeners did too. When her frontal cortex lit up, so did theirs. And then... Then he says something that still feels like a line straight out of Inception. By simply telling a story, the woman could plant ideas, thoughts, and emotions into the listener's brain. Jeez, no wonder we prefer stories over traditional facts and figures. They bind up our collective humanity. The question for us, then, as we tell our tales, is not so much how to tell it, but rather, what impact this story has had on our lives together. 
I once went to a storytelling conference, and the keynote speaker said something that may relate. A story, he said, with a little mischievous look in his eye, does not always have to be factually accurate to be true. I think he's right, just not in the way he meant it. You see, this doesn't give us permission to lie, but rather to recognize what elements we emphasize and how those high notes impact our audience. Our minds will make meaning from whatever information it gets. We can't control that. It's a pre-programmed neurological response. We literally create our own stories from the stories we hear by ignoring specific parts. We'll willingly misinterpret facts or even reverse the information. Sometimes we'll even come up with new stuff. Anything to ensure that it all makes sense to us. Whatever doesn't make sense, we just ignore it. Truly. Take this one-line story. Her husband walked in just in time to see his wife undressing in front of the man. Now tell me this. What assumptions do you make from the details I've given you in this story? Surely it's a salacious moment in their marriage. You assume a potential response by the man. It's probably a little dramatic, screaming, anger, maybe a fight. Undoubtedly, your minds recreated all of that, even though that was not mentioned. This is, as I've heard it called, make sense mandate. It literally is recreating a story from the story. Now, here's that exact same story with just one different word. Her husband walked in just in time to see his wife undressing in front of the doctor. One word can make a world of difference for the worlds your audience creates. Don't be ashamed for jumping to conclusions. It's just a sign of your humanity. So consider your day today. You may not realize it, but you will tell countless stories. Some quick and some unprepared. Others are the ones that you've told countless times. Stories don't just make a difference in influencing others. They are the difference. And that leads us to our micro-behavior. Are you ready? Here it is. I call it story matching. Deliberately designing stories to match a key situation. Think of one encounter today when you hope to influence someone or impress or communicate. A sales meeting, a lunch with an estranged friend, or perhaps those weekly Zoom calls. Now, match that outcome with the right story. Be deliberate in what strong imagery you really want to convey. Three good lines actually usually does the trick. I know that stories can be intricately crafted and that there are multiple methods, steps, and rules. But just for now, and just for today, let's... Let's work on one thing, matching the right message for the moment. Consider what elements you need to emphasize to make this narrative more meaningful. Write down three lines that include the imagery or words or details. I promise that makes a big difference. Take, for example, our two heroes. A few added details change the entire dynamic of their story. And it also changes your response as a listener.
about the 70th round, the audience began to complain because the boxers were doing a lot more dancing than jabbing. Some were even sleeping in the stands. And the police chief, who was responsible for the safety of the event, said there should be no draw when the fight was not brutal. The day after, many newspaper headlines had titles like Looked like a fake. They weren't enamored with the romantic struggle or the fight for what you believe in spirit. It was very different from the quixotic headlines that are floating around social media today. People don't tell that part of the story. Or you might talk about a year after the longest boxing match, when Andy Bowen found himself in another ring. This time, it was against George the Kid Levine, who struck a vicious blow to Bowen's head and knocked him unconscious. The reports vary, but it's most likely that Bowen hit his head against a heavy wall, leaving him barely breathing. His wife was waiting nervously for him to come home, as she did on all of his fights. As they brought his lifeless body into the home, a reporter detailed what happened next. Just as the hands of the clock were creeping around to seven, Mrs. Bowen leaned over to the bed and said, Andy, say something to me. And her ears were strained to catch the word. Andy shivered and groaned. His frame shook and then he breathed his last and the record of tragedy was written. Grief, panic, anger, all the feelings that accompany death. Levine himself would be charged for manslaughter and it was a watershed moment for boxing. Are these athletes criminals if they kill someone? The argument, of course, was that Bowen had been hit too many times and in too many rings. Like the one that lasted 110 rounds. Reporters believed it was the end of boxing. It was too gruesome, all too real. Suddenly the bloody knuckles, the broken bones, and the bruised brains weren't worth the inspired stories. And they were nearly right. Commissions pulled all sorts of permits, and boxers went without matches. But the shock wore off, as it always seems to do, and the romanticism crept itself back into the sport. People, they don't tell that part of the story either. Don't get me wrong, I am not blaming anyone, because every storyteller has to deal with limited attention and time. They can't cover every minute detail. Heck, we deal with this in every episode of Microbehaviors. And it's another reason I'm so adamant we gather primary sources for our stories. But I also recognize there are plenty of other journal entries, interviews, or newspaper articles that I just did not get to. Each of those pieces can spotlight new elements that are still true, but they dramatically change the tone. And if we're not careful, we may tell a tale we don't intend, and with consequences we haven't considered. And then it becomes, well, how did the reporter put it? The record of tragedy we've written. <laughs>